Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolbert. And sadly, our regular other host, Matthew Sanderson, is unable to join us this week as he has been in hospital for the past over a week now with a life-threatening condition. But I'm pleased to say that it appears that he is now emerging from a coma at the time of recording. Keep an eye on our social media for any updates. We're getting regular updates from Tiffany, Matt's wife. And like Paul just said, his condition is improving fast. But it's early days yet and we don't know how long it's going to be until he's back on the podcast with us. And in Matt's absence, we're going to pause our run of episodes about the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, and we'll come back to it when Matt's better and he's back recording with us. But until then... Yes, we are joined by a guest host, Mr. Baz Stevens. Welcome, Baz. Hello, I'm the silver lining to a particularly horrible cloud. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you may have heard of Baz Stevens for a, a plethora of reasons. He is an author and a podcaster. Now, uh, Baz, do you want to tell us a little bit about your prestige game, King of Dungeons? <laughs> prestige game. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on in terrible circumstances. Yeah, bona fides. So I wrote a game a couple of years ago called The King of Dungeons because there, frankly, weren't enough fantasy role-playing games in the world. Um, and certainly, <laughs> I felt like there were a few more that were needed to be based on D&D. Certainly, that was a niche market that no one else had managed to find. So I grabbed that corner of the market um, and that's done incredibly well. So that was uh, successfully kickstarted a couple of years ago. And that's kind of like the thing that is out there for people to buy that's got my name on and loads of people do, which is great. And then behind the scenes, uh, I do loads of freelance stuff and fan stuff as well. And a kind of a columnist and podcaster and, and just a bloke with a big mouth about gaming, really. <laughs> You'll fit right in then. <laughs> I'm going to quiz you a couple of times on this show, Baz. And my first quiz oh, question God. for you is, how many products on Drive-Thru RPG are you listed as author? That is a great question. Um, I don't know. Maybe eight? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, you've overreached yourself a little bit there. According Story to Drive-Thru RPG, you're listed on six products. So you need to work on two more. Ah, okay. Now, I should say that some of my scribblings predate the internet. (laughs) (laughs) On stone tablets. Now, of course, as I said, you're not only known as an author, but also as a podcast, an an award-winning podcaster, primarily with your good friend, Gaz, for What Would the Smart Party Do? So if any of our listeners have not come across the wonderful show, What Would the Smart Party Do? Do you want to just give us an elevator pitch for that? Yeah, certainly. So my mate Gaz and I have known each other for probably coming up on 30 years now. And we've always been the kind of fellas who would stick around after a game has been played. And we would spend at least as long talking about the game we've just played as we did playing it. And we would have long kind of whiskey soaked sessions into the evening back in the 90s about what was wrong with gaming and how it could be fixed if only we were given the keys to the gaming (laughs) Lamborghini. And then, then stupidly, someone invented microphones and recording equipment. So we just carried on doing that. 
stuck a title over it and whacked it out on the nascent internet some years ago now. And then I do not know how this has happened, but somehow we're up into 150 episodes, something like that. That's a lot of content, not quite as much as your good selves, but we just chit chat about games, gaming in general. It's quite a generalist overview of role playing games. We sometimes, well, we often have guest interviews on. We've been really, really lucky with our portfolio at this day. If you go and look through the back catalogue, if they're involved in gaming, they're probably on there. And really good interviews. Uh, Dabble into reviews, APs, that kind of thing. And it remains a delight to to get on the microphone with Gaz and have guests on and just do what we're doing now, which is to talk about people with funny-shaped dice and strange dreams. Now, I occasionally go out for a run or a walk in the week, and I usually put your podcast on when I do. And I think more than any other podcast, I've had to stop, get my phone out of my pocket and take some notes, <laughs> just inspired by uh, what you've been saying. Are these angry letters that you want to send to the editor? Yes. <laughs> Another rant on the internet. And you've got a new show, Baz, uh, new at the start of this year, about RuneQuest. The pitch being that it was a game that has been around for what about 40 odd mm. years but you've never really played or or not very much now i get that's a good model for a podcast but did you have any trepidations about committing to a show about a game that you were new to no 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 trepidations i guess this is where our venn diagrams overlap a little bit because chaos make RuneQuest and call of cthulhu and have a fine stable of games but it was it was really a chance experiment I feel stupid for having done over 150 podcasts and written, as we now know, at least half a dozen role-playing products to have not actually played RuneQuest particularly. I have played two games prior to this. One was with Greg Stafford, which I think definitely counts. Um, (laughs) So I'd felt like I was really, I needed to build my credentials somehow and getting into RuneQuest and picking up the starter set and attacking it through new eyes, I thought would be a good vector because I don't know how many people jump into the hobby these days and RuneQuest is their first game. Back when I started Mm. in 1980, that would have been a lot of them. I don't know if that's still true in the 21st century. And I thought, I'm never really going to get the chance to be brand new to a hobby in role-playing. I think I've done most of it. And this was definitely a gap in the old CV. So I've really enjoyed lifting the lid on this thing. And I thought I might as well record my thoughts because it's certainly a great deal easier than typing them. And, you know, six or seven episodes in now and still some more to go. And it's got a really lovely little community around it. And it's a nice little side hustle from the main podcast. Great stuff. Before we jump into the main topic, is there any news? Yes, I believe we do have some news, Scott, about A Weekend with Good Friends. As we've mentioned a few times in the podcast in recent episodes, A Weekend with Good Friends is coming up soon. This is the gaming convention, the online gaming convention, that is organised by our lovely listeners and takes place on our Discord server. The latest convention will be kicking off just a few days after this episode goes out. Now, we do have a whole bunch of scheduled games, but the GM signups and the player signups for those are closed now. However, there will be lots and lots of pickup games running throughout the convention as well. So don't worry if you've missed all the sign-up stuff. You can just come along to the Discord server, take a look for pickup games, offer pickup games, that would be even better, and there will be lots of stuff for you to do throughout the weekend. So that's running 18th, 19th, 20th of Feb? 2022. Have I got the dates right there? You have, yes. I'll put a link in the show notes. 
And now on to our main topic, everything is horror. In our episode about the appeal of horror, back in episode 66, a long time ago, we talked a little bit about how horror can be a flavouring that's sprinkled over other genres. But we thought it might be interesting to dig into that a little bit more and talk about how horror finds its way into all sorts of media, especially gaming, and what happens when it does. This topic was suggested to us by Baz, and I believe the reason for this is that you're not particularly a horror fan, but a lot of the games that you like have had bits of horror seep into them. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right, Scott. It's, it kind of intrigues me that if I go to the movies or I pick up a new novel or looking around in the convention hall to sign up for a game, probably the last thing I will go to is horror. Hmm. It's just going to be low on my list. It's just not a priority for me. There are other things that I tend to go for. But horror is always there as an option, isn't it? It is almost ubiquitous. And if, if I'm really honest with myself, some of the most pleasing times I've ever had in gaming have had, uh, to one degree or another, a good slathering of horror in them. And even the games that ostensibly don't really look like they're horror games, um, I mean, take Dungeons & Dragons, for example, I actually find that it always bubbles up from underneath it and some of the most effective sessions that I've either run or played have had horror elements to them and I'm kind of curious to look at myself and my gaming practice to see why that's the case and, and, and can I do something with it to make our games even better or am I better off just excising it entirely and trying to find horror-free <laughs> gaming to see if that's the best best way forward. You got me wondering whether horror-free gaming actually exists, exactly. because when I was thinking about it, as the title of this episode suggests, there's horror in everything. You talk about Dungeons and Dragons there, and I was thinking about this earlier today, and there is something, I think, inherently frightening about the idea of going down to this isolated dark place under the ground filled with monsters and traps and you're in constant mortal danger there may be things sneaking around they're unseen threats and the whole thing is horrific. I, I remember this coming home to me years and years back when I went to my first ever LARP. It's the only boffer LARP I've ever been to, but I back, oh, God, 30 years ago or so, I went to this LARP at Chiselhurst Caves. And Chiselhurst Caves is this massive cave complex. Obviously, yeah, it's all underground. It's all natural caves. The uh, terrain is a bit uneven. There's lots of places you can't see. It's dark. Unless you've got light sources, it's dark. And it made the whole experience very, I don't know, weird and frightening. Uh, certainly for a first-time thing, and it hadn't really occurred to me playing D&D before how being down there with, say, limited light and resources and, you know, like I said, all these, these mortal threats could be horror, but it absolutely is. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I think that uh, games designers in that fantasy realm have certainly doubled down on some of that stuff over the years and now you've got entire offshoots of the hobby which are focusing in on that horror element of as you say dropping into a hole in the ground with murder on your mind hmm. it's a strange thing to do i mean imagine your experience in chisel earth case but i want to add a skeleton to that or an owlbear hmm. or a beholder these are almost like comic examples but actually if you were really put in that situation you would have brown trousers before the end of the hour 
So it's really interesting to see games like Merkberg and mm. Lamentations of the Flame Princess and Best Left Buried and things like Torchbearer that have really moved into that area of like just how horrific is this lifestyle of adventuring in a fantasy realm. And we can go back even further to stuff like Warhammer, a very British invention, mm. which will have like your chaos gods and all of that kind of stuff. And the more you look, the more you realize that these things are drenched and soaked in horror tropes. It's almost like a horror genre that's had fantasy layered over the top of it. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, though, comes down to how these elements are presented in the games. Because if you think about your classic dungeon crawl, that isn't played for horror. Usually it's a high adventure. You're going down a hole in the ground with your magic and your weapons and your armor and so on. And there's an element of challenge. You're pitting yourself against monsters. You're looking for traps and so on. But it's all done with a sense of fun and adventure. But you could take that exact same scenario, that exact same setup, and just by narrating things differently, mm -hmm. do it all as survival mm -hmm. horror. So it really seems to come down to the expectations of how we approach the material. I think that's entirely correct. I was thinking about fighting a skeleton, which is, mm. if you've grown up on Jason the Argonauts, it would be very, very easy to, to imagine. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons and many other games will have you fighting a skeleton at some point, probably quite early on in the game. And I was reading a book the other day. It's for an Inquisitor book for Warhammer 40,000, of all things. And Dad Abnett was describing um, some bones coming to life and threatening what was ostensibly a role-playing party. And over the space of about six or seven pages, it absolutely put a chill down my spine. It was terrifying. And I really got into the minds of the protagonists and everything else. And that doesn't happen when I play D&D &D and I roll to attack against the mm. skeleton. It, it, it never really mm. has. And I think if I sit in isolation and look at it through a different lens, and if we all sat down on the table and looked at it through a different lens, it could actually be a really affecting encounter. And it is interesting to me why that doesn't seem to happen in some role-playing games and sessions when it, it can easily happen through novels, through movies, or sitting down with the mindset that this is going to be a horrific experience. Is it because when you're playing D&D, &D, part of you kind of knows that that skeleton probably isn't that much of a threat. You kind of mm. rate it on a scale and think, okay, well, it's got, you know, X number of hit points, mm. its armor class is this. Or even if you don't quantify it numerically, you know that you're with a party, you're going to be able to take this out. Maybe one of you get wounded, but there's an almost measurable level of threat there. So in a way, it ceases to be a threat. Yes, I'm sure you're right, Paul, because it's, it, it's impossible to not meta these situations isn't it especially when you've got a few games under your belt as we all have i guess when i think back to when i was 11 and my first experience of encountering a skeleton i probably was terrified mm. it's difficult to replicate that again and there's mm. all kinds of techniques where where books will suggest to you if you're the gm you know don't call the monster by its name just call it by how it sounds how it appears etc and that's right isn't it but there's that novelty factor of a strange foe is definitely a bit spine tingling. But it's not just the foe, it's the whole experience. I remember the first time I played D&D, I mean, I was a bit older than you. The first time I played, I think I was 16, 17. And that first dungeon was scary. And it wasn't just that I didn't know how many hit points the monsters had or what their vulnerabilities were or even what they were called. It was the fact that I hadn't got used to the tropes, I hadn't become inured to the whole experience of, of role-playing. And 
everything felt like a threat. And so I just remember, I mean, there were three or four of us playing the DM had played a few times before, but the rest of us hadn't. And so we were going around so cautiously, <laughs> playing first level characters, just poking absolutely everything with our 10 foot poles and checking around every corner. And it really did feel like we were these incredibly vulnerable characters going to this dangerous situation and absolutely anything could kill us at any time. Mm. Yeah, the old joke is that the old school D&D is more like fantasy Vietnam than anything yeah. else. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the jobs of role-playing games is to stimulate our imaginations and anything it can do to engage and enliven your imagination and excite you is good. And a fundamental way of doing that is giving somebody the creeps or, you know, putting something in that's disturbing or strange or weird or spooky. And if you think about where we go for thrills and excitement, traditionally would go to the fun fair and what do you find at the fun fair where you find scary rides that throw you around and disorientate you which are kind of scary but also you find the ghost train <laughs> very traditional fair on those kind of things which totally plays into the horror tropes of ghosts and things hanging down and darkness and things jumping out at you and it's all a bit of a laugh but it does play into the horror thing. So I think it's only natural when we play games because when you're GMing, it is quite a free-form thing. You've maybe got, if you're playing a traditional dungeon, you've got the thing and it says, you know, there are some goblins in this room. So it's very easy to sort of then think, well, actually, they've only got a torch and there's a wind mm. and that blows that out and then you can hear them scrabbling around and very quickly you're into something that feels quite scary. Mm. Yeah. Or at least you're trying to evoke those feelings a little bit. Well, I think as well, when I'm writing stuff and when I'm GMing, I'm most of the time thinking about trying to evoke emotions in players. It's not always fear, but I want there to be some kind of emotional reaction or emotional punch to what's going on. And fear is just part of that palette. But I was, again, thinking about this a bit before we started recording and, and realized fundamentally I don't approach horror any differently than any other genre in that respect, that I don't necessarily see trying to evoke those sensations of you know terror or disgust or whatever as being any different from trying to evoke any other emotions, pathos or intrigue or whatever, that it's, it is just all part of a continuum. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I think when I, similarly to you, Scott, then when I'm writing games or, or playing in them, it is about getting an emotional punch. Uh, it's mm -hmm. definitely about getting a response. And I often will look to provide tension, dilemma, consequences. These are all words that you might not necessarily apply to the horror genre immediately, but of course they sit at the heart of it, don't they? Tension and mm -hmm. release, the idea of conflict which can be an internal conflict, or it could be a conflict within you in your band or something you have to deal with in the environment around you. Without those, it's just, it's like watching the Darling Buds of May, isn't it? Nothing really <laughs> happens and it's all very cosy. And I don't think anybody, I'm sorry, I should never say I don't think anybody, but it, I find it difficult to imagine that that's sustainable fun in, in, in role-playing games where nothing basically ever challenges you. Yeah. So what does horror give us in role-playing games that, the lack of horror leaves us without. What does horror bring to the game? Aside from that feeling, whether you like it or you don't like it, of the engagement with the sort of horror genre, does it bring things 
to play to the table that you don't get with just fantasy or you don't get with just, I don't know, science fiction or historical drama, whatever it may be? Does it allow us to do other things? I can tell that's a tricky question, so I'm going to give an answer. I think it engages people's <laughs> imagination, but also it, it defines a threat, an external threat, which is trying to attack the player characters. I think it often personifies that. In the simplistic terms, there's a monster out there, there's a baddie out there, and they're doing something bad. I'm not sure that that necessarily equals horror. Horror can mean all sorts of different things. But that example you just gave there, you mentioned Vietnam earlier, fantasy mm. Vietnam. But I mean, if you were playing an actual, say, game where you're playing soldiers in Vietnam, yeah. everything you've described there could actually apply. So say you're playing American soldiers in Vietnam, you're there in, in the jungle, you're in unfamiliar terrain, you can't really see what's going on. There's, again, mortal threats, traps. It all feels very much like horror, but I don't think too many people would define that as horror. Mm. So... When you're talking about horror in this respect, I think it's very easy to conflate that with just tension or thrills or, or just uncertainty. But I think horror is something a bit different. Well, we get into the definition of what's horror and what's not then. Yeah. But um, yeah, one thing, uh, Baz, you said in terms of films, you said you're a big fan of Jaws. Yeah, so, I mean, and, and this kind of like sits between the point that Scott and you just made, actually. Mm. So, I mean, I love Jaws. I think it is my favourite film, despite you know, publicly not being really a horror fan. Maybe I am a horror fan, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things I love about Jaws is the character interplay. It's not really about the shark, is it, classically? Jaws has nothing to do with the shark. It's about a lot of things, but not that. But what I do take from that is that you've got a, a band of people who come from different walks of life and have different agendas at the start, but it all starts to come together. There's a feeling of isolation. Their way of life is being attacked. And for me, essentially, there is a victory at the end. And that's what always makes me think maybe I'm not a horror fan after all, because I kind of like to come out of these things ah. feeling like a hero. And for me, what I like to do with horror is I use it as the antagonist and it gives my action adventure heroes something to rail against hopefully overcome not always and it is the enemy horror is the enemy in my games rather than an ally and that's where i get the most juice out of it but i wonder if there's more juice to be had i think it makes it easier to engage with the enemy if there's an element of horror involved in whatever way that might manifest mm. And to actually see them as an enemy, you know, emotionally. Again, how does that differ from the enemy being just simply, you know, an antagonistic combatant or some kind of evil mastermind or... I don't think it does. I mean, I think, obviously, horror is a broad concept and people will argue what's horror and what's not. We just talked about Jaws. There's mm. nothing supernatural in that. You could look at Science of the Lambs. That's just an evil guy who kills people, Right. That word supernatural, I think, is important, Paul. I think that might be the thing, mm. the jam that's in every sandwich in role-playing games is there's not that many role-playing games that don't have the supernatural in comparison to those that do. The ratio is definitely stacked up with zombies and skeletons and magic and cults and so on. And maybe that's where it lives. I think that's a good point, even aside from horror, actually, because I remember at Milton Keynes Role-Playing Club, our friend Neil, 
we were trying to come up with ideas for for a, a role playing game to you know basically a story framework to play at the table. And Neil wanted us to come up with a plot that didn't have supernatural in it mm. that there wouldn't be any supernatural at all and i personally found that really hard because it means you know no zombies <laughs> no cthulhu mythos obviously felt like you had your hand chopped off at this point didn't you what can i do but also no magic yeah no psychic powers no gods. But there certainly are RPGs out there that don't do that. I mean, even right back to the early days of RPGs, things like Boot Hill and Gangbusters. And Gangbusters, yeah. But I've never really played those very much. Uh, no, neither did I. I always played, uh, my games are a form of escapism, uh, you know, broadly. I want to bring in a mention, we were talking about Vietnam a second ago. Mm. Vietnam's a pretty horrific conflict, as as they all are, but that one's yeah. right up there for all kinds of like great horror stories that you can tell based on that. But one of my favourite games is a game called Tour of Darkness, which is part of the Savage Worlds canon. And that adds supernatural to what is already a pretty horrible place. And I really like that game. It's a bit niche, but it's not the first or last time it's been done. By adding supernatural in, it seems to make it more gameable. Mm. It puts the toolbox at your full disposal, doesn't it? And I think it removes it a little bit from realistic history as well yeah. which is perhaps more palatable in a way mm -hmm. although we're making it more well i don't know if we are making it more scary perhaps we're making it less scary by adding in those horror tropes yeah. maybe maybe yeah. yeah certainly making it less morally murky as well that as soon as you're dealing with monsters and so on then it's far easier to justify some of the horrible things that might happen in a game than if you're dealing with say you know an opposing you know vietnamese army yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Indeed. Yeah. So isn't that strange then that the horror elements of something like Deadlands are there to make it more <laughs> more comfortable for everybody? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. I made this comment so many times when I was working on World War Cthulhu that adding the mythos to a lot of the historical stuff, particularly once we got to the Cold War setting, actually made it less horrific than the real history, that it diluted it. It shifted the focus away sometimes from the very real human human atrocities that were going on mm, mm. yeah indeed i guess because we're bringing in the fantastic and the fantastic mm. frees up our imaginations mm. if you're dealing with whatever war be it vietnam be it second world war any war if you don't have that element of fantasy in it as we saw in um oh the del toro film uh pan's labyrinth you know that that's such a beautiful film but against such a dreadful setting. And it does depict some horrendous brutality within the mundane community of soldiers and so on. But the, the beauty of the fantasy just makes it quite magical and, and so engaging to me. It does. It acts as a little bit of insulation as well, isn't it? Because mm. if you're getting some emotional bleed from the situation you're in, in your game, then that fantasy duvet you can just pull over yourself literally like there's a monster under the bed but you can pull the fantasy over you so you don't have to look underneath it it's, it could be comforting but i would argue that bringing fantastical or supernatural elements in again doesn't necessarily mean it's horror say if you have um, an urban fantasy story or even better paranormal romance where you have romantic plots that involve supernatural beings like werewolves and vampires 
They use a lot of horror imagery, a lot of horror truths, but they're not horror. Mm. Bringing a vampire into a story like that doesn't make it horror. At the same time, there's plenty of horror that has no supernatural elements. Slasher movies, giallo, a lot of the thrillers of the 90s that were really horror in more marketable clothing. Mm. These things are definitely horror. So... I agree absolutely about bringing these fantastic elements in to make games more palatable or to shift the focus or whatever. I don't think that makes them horror. For whatever reason, we've ended up mentioning the Vietnam War quite a bit. Apocalypse Now, certainly parts of that, I would say, bridge into the the feel of horror. I wouldn't call it a horror film, Mm -hmm. but elements of it, I would say, are. I think you're right, mate. And I think as you're talking, I'm thinking about then uh, Scott's point as well about if it's supernatural, it isn't necessarily horror. I think that's right. It all depends on presentation, as everything does. And I wonder if it's the, if a better word for this might be fear. I wonder if mm. the emotion or the sensation of fear, that's when you know it's horror. If you're not really scared, if you've got that, that comforter of like, oh, it's just the fey court, they're just elves. Whereas I think we all know, like, if you really delve into what's going on with like elves and fake courts, it could be absolutely terrifying. If you mm. feel the fear, you've got horror in your game. If you're not feeling the fear and you've got what look like horror elements and it's maybe a bit more cartoony or pulpy, then it's just set dressing, perhaps. But it's also, I'd say, a continuum as well. So I could make an argument that... Call of Cthulhu doesn't have to be a horror game. You can run plenty of scenarios using the core elements of Call of Cthulhu and them not be horror games. That fundamentally is a game about aliens and uh, strange worlds. I mean, you have an entire fantasy setting there in Mm -hmm. the form of the Dreamlands. And you can play up all these elements, take them out of Lovecraft, out of the other mythos writers, out of the game and play a game that is is weird is fantastical but doesn't have to be at all scary mm. i mean lovecraft was known for writing weird fiction rather mm. than horror fiction that was the label that he chose i think chose to ad- adhere to well i don't think horror was quite as much of a marketing thing back in the 1920s i i think that probably came more out of the cinema of the 30s and 40s at the time lovecraft was writing we didn't really have the same genre labels that got defined shortly afterwards and weird fiction as we said on the podcast before was this amalgamation of what we consider to be all sorts of other genres and people just mixed and matched elements and uh, did whatever they want without really the same consideration of genre that would come later. So we've talked about some games that, that have horror in them. What about games that don't have any horror in them? We mentioned like Boot Hill, we mentioned Gangbusters. I mean, are we stuck in the 1970s? <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at uh, all. Yes, we probably are, actually. I'm sure there have been some games published <laughs> since then. There have. There's loads, actually. I mean, one of the, the most brilliant things of the last 20 years has been the explosion in story gaming. Mm. And from that perspective, a story game can be about any kind of story that you want to tell. And I suppose the ones that people might have heard of would be things like Golden Sky Stories or Ryotama. There are games out there that don't even really concentrate on conflict, let alone horror. And that's amazing that those games exist. 
really amazing because I thought you would have to have those things in order to maintain interest, but I've been proven wrong time and time again. So there's also games based on, on romance. Uh, not enough of them, frankly, given how much of the mainstream media is obsessed with romance and from Romeo and Juliet before then and on from then. It's bizarre that we don't have more games about that kind of thing. So it is there. Are there games at the, the, the forefront of our hobby and industry that don't feature horror? Possibly not, unless you look at things like D&D and Pathfinder and don't see the horror in it. Although I think we've discussed it is there. Yeah, and sometimes exemplified by things like Ravenloft, mm. which totally buys into that trope. But going back to what you were saying about conflict in indie games, I think there's a difference between horror, oh, that kind of threat, and just general conflict. Mm. I've played a lot of indie games, and there's always, I'd say, some conflict in them. It's just that the conflict is perhaps gentler, it's more emotional, it's lower stakes. But there's usually something that is at stake. There's something that the protagonists are trying to achieve and there are barriers in the way. Mm -hmm. It's just that those barriers don't necessarily involve violence or, or physical threat. I did have the experience once of playing a game where the designer had very deliberately tried to avoid having any conflict or conflict resolution or anything like that in the game and it was the most boring fucking experience <laughs> i've ever had I mean, it was just three hours of pushing against jelly i want this to happen okay it happens right um now what yeah yeah yeah, yeah oh yeah, wow yeah. Yeah, well, some of those games as well can be, you know, even more mainstream. They could be games like Nobilis, um, for for example, or games where the game isn't about like uh, overcoming obstacles at all. It's about what you do when you bypass those things, and those are perfectly justifiable stories to want to tell. But I'm with you, Scott, on that one. I want there to be some pushback in in mm. this. Otherwise, my agency is utterly. There's no point to the agency, and I know that there's an argument that horror gaming is about removing player agency, but you've got to leave them with some, otherwise nothing to be frightened about. Well, it's about fighting for agency, I'd say. Yeah. That is a form of conflict. If you have a horror game where you just start out with no agency and you don't get a chance to fight for it, then again, that would be just as bad as there being no conflict, yeah. because it's just another way of saying there's no conflict. We just talked about games that potentially don't involve horror. Is there such a thing, though, as a pure horror game? As I mentioned with Call of Cthulhu a moment back, that's not pure horror, as far as I'm concerned. It can be, but it's not inherently. And when I was thinking about other classic or fairly big horror games, maybe not that big, but Unknown Armies, I was thinking about that, and yeah. that fundamentally is urban fantasy. I mean, it's got some horror elements in it, but I don't think it's necessarily pure horror again you can run it as such probably the closest i could come up with was cult but again cult i mean you can sort of run that as urban fantasy you can play up the weird aspects of it you could even play it as a, a relatively straight thriller just with a few elements in it i was struggling to think of too many games that are just outright horror maybe something like 10 candles i think there are some that are build as outright horror, uh, like literally mm -hmm. on the cover, you've got Dead of Night and Chill, games like that. But then they, mm. they, they're almost, with no slight at all intended, they are almost like leaning into the tropes of that with an almost postmodern kind of ironic look at yeah. what that means. I think Ten Candles is a really good shout, Scott. That's definitely one that would be that. It's, it's, it's designed to elicit that emotion. Potentially things like Dread, 
Mm-hmm. But it's not my territory. Uh, about to, to, to you guys on, on where the horror games are at. I'm happy over here with my unknown armies. It's one of my very favorite games. I adore that game. I adore the writing in that game and the, the concepts that it elicits. And I definitely feel that there is horror threaded all the way through that, like words for a stick mm. of rock. But I don't consider it a horror game, same as you, Scott. It doesn't feel like that to me. I guess you can run any genre, romance, horror, you know, fantasy, whatever, with any system. Uh, but it, it's not the system I'm talking about. It's the setting. That well, in, any in system or setting then, yeah. I would say. But using the core elements and the tropes that make up that game that where there are any where those tropes and elements are just purely horror right what the actual written background of the game you mean yeah is that what you're yeah the, yeah, the presentation about? of it whether it is pure horror uh wraith mm. from back in the 90s and potentially from there you can go into the white wolf canon but wraith especially um is is certainly it's a game about death uh, and that should be horrifying to anybody. Um, but then the hanging on to life and the passions that you can't let go. And, and even if you do let go as a ghost in Wraith and you head towards the underworld, things don't get any prettier for you down there. And you can literally be hammered into shape and to become like a key hmm. or a roof tile. And you spend your eternity <laughs> screaming into oblivion. There's no fun to be had there, but there's a particular kind of fun to be had there. And I would count that <laughs> as a horror game through and through. Like you just said, that's Wraith very much plays on all those tropes of horror. You're a ghost, there's the afterlife, there's all those things you're going to go through. All the dials are turned up towards the horrific things in in the setting throughout. Whereas if you want to emulate a a broad swathe of, let's say, horror films, then you couldn't really do it with Wraith. No, no, not at uh, all. Whereas you could do it with Call of Cthulhu because Call of Cthulhu is very much rooted as Lovecraft stories were in the the contemporary real world and to root it in the real world you've got to have the real world as it appears now when I look out my window and then add the horror bits in but how much of those horror bits you add in you know again that's how much you turn up that dial and you can leave it turned down throughout the whole game if you want like Scott said you could play it and the horror never really comes to the fore, or you could potentially leave it out altogether. It'd kind of be an unusual Call of Cthulhu game, but you could do that. For me, that's one of the strengths of the game, because I think a game that is pure horror, I think it almost makes it harder to buy into. You know, Mm. if you think about a film that plays up the horror pretty strongly, one that we talked about on the show, say like Hellraiser, there's quite a few bits of that that are just set in the normal everyday world, but there's a, there's a lot of horror stuff in there as well, right? But you know, I'm just thinking of films that that really sort of play up that horror side. Yeah, they rarely do it to the exclusion of everything else. And I think those that do are less successful for me. Yeah, for me, you need that light and shade. Uh, you need that change of pace. You need to. For me, you need to know that there's something to fight for and is worth doing, even if it is unsuccessful at the end. Otherwise, it, I would think that would be too one-dimensional. Because I think most films, whether it be a comedy or a romance or a whatever, we don't just want one tone. No. We don't just want mm. one flavour. It's like having yeah. a, a meal and it's all just, I don't know, whatever. It's just one thing. You want some variety. I mean, like Shaun of the Dead, that's a great example. It's funny and it's horror. There are some bits where it does actually sort of play up the horror and it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's pretty uh, gory, pretty 
scary in, in, you know, to a degree. But then there's that scene where Sean's talking to his dad, played by Bill Nighy, or his, his stepdad. And it's a really, it gets me every time. It's a really emotional, perhaps a bit sentimental scene where they sort of have a, a sort of a, an attempted sort of reunification and, and everything. And it's really touching, but it's not horror and it's not comedy. And I think in any piece of art, in any genre, whether it's a book or a film, and equally a role-playing game, a story, you want variation. You want, sometimes it wants to be funny. Sometimes everybody's just laughing. Other times, or maybe you start in media res with an action scene or whatever. And other times, it can be creepy horror. So I think that variation is what I want. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the way that I think I use horror in my games is as a seasoning. Um, and I sort of sprinkle it into to to make a metaphor out of it and dangerous territory here. But I sort of sprinkle it into my games to give it flavour and depth, and sometimes more and sometimes less. Now I don't want to eat a dish of just salt and pepper. That's not for me at all. That would be a very strange thing to do. But there are certainly meals that benefit from a lot more of that horror flavour running all the way through it. But it's a blend and it's a variation. And even over the course of like a single session, I think you can go deep into horrific tropes and come back out of them again and move about. If you have a one-tone game in a one-tone setting, I think that would just become quite dull after a while. Going back to something you said a moment ago, Paul, about horror being rooted in the real world. I mean, it doesn't have to be. We've got things like Alien, where it's taking place on the spaceship. Or I would say that's totally rooted in the real world. <laughs> I know, I know it's it's a science fiction thing, but when you watch Alien, there are a bunch of guys sitting around in a canteen eating. It's very relatable. Yes, it's dressed up slightly differently. They could just be in a ship going across the ocean, right? Then Event Horizon. Yeah. Or sticking with gaming Ravenloft. Horror doesn't have to be rooted in the real world for it to be horror. No, it doesn't have to be rooted in the real world. But I think you have to be able to buy into the setting, I guess, is is what I mean. You have to be able to associate with the to some degree, whether you like them or not, I think you have to be able to not necessarily sympathise with the characters, but associate yourself with them. Relate, Mm. perhaps. Relate to them, yeah, is a good way of putting it. And equally, to buy into the setting, I think you have to be able to buy into it and relate to it. I agree. And just to step back to the brief discussion about Alien, it made me think, actually, and this is a very old game, Traveller, of all things, Mm. has, as far as I can tell, zero horror in it as presented. Mm. It's very workmanlike. You're literally paying off a mortgage, for goodness sake. You happen Mm. to be doing it in a science fiction environment, and there's psychic aliens and so on, but it's not designed as a horror game. But I think within minutes of it hitting the market, people were trying to play Alien with it. And it's ended (laughs) up with things like Mothership 40 years later. And it's almost the first thing you want to do and I don't know if it's instinct, intuition, or we've just been trained that way, is to dribble horror into games that really don't even have it in in the first place. If it's not there, we want it, don't we? Yeah. And uh, well, I think science fiction particularly lends itself very well to that because, as I was mentioning earlier, Lovecraft is fundamentally science fiction with the aliens and strange mm. worlds. And I think a lot of that maps onto other science fiction very well. I was thinking about this a lot recently because I, I've i just finished reading The Expanse novels, mm-hmm. and The Expanse is fundamentally space opera. Very small-scale space opera to begin with, limited entirely to the solar system, but then it branches out from there. 
but it is about what happens when humanity encounters the ineffably alien and how this transforms humanity. And it's a very Lovecraftian thing. And, and though I don't think anyone would describe it as horror, those horror elements, those Lovecraftian elements are baked all the way through that. And you know, there are so many science fiction stories where that's exactly the case that I think there's something very natural about encountering the alien, encountering alien ruins, dead civilizations, creatures we can't possibly understand, weird technology and so on, that just makes it horror. Yes, I'm struggling to think of whether the expanse would have been as powerful as it is without the proto-molecule mm. in the early stuff, at least. That fear of the unknown, that status quo being about to be pushed over by something ineffable, is a big part of its power, isn't it? And that's that mm. feels to me like certainly horror. Well, I might jump in with another little quiz here for Baz. Mm. Okay, well, Baz, I don't want to gatekeep like being a horror fan. <laughs> and you've said that you don't consider yourself a horror fan. Thinking about other people, I'd say Scott is definitely a right as a horror fan. Myself, probably somewhere in the middle. I'm a fan of horror films, but not as big as Scott. But I've Googled... The top 10 horror films and i found a list on rolling stone which look fairly reasonable i'm going to ask you baz yes i'm not going to bother asking scott because i know he's seen them all <laughs> and uh, looking through them i was reassured to see that i'd seen them all as well so which ones yes and no have you seen seen or enjoyed <laughs> oh well i think yeah okay we can have both okay yeah okay go for it mate. number one the exorcist uh never seen it never seen okay well wow. one down yeah, Scott can't believe it. <laughs> Number two, The Shining. Nope. Okay. <laughs> That's a good start, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. It's backing up what you said. But with both of those, I'm, I'm very, very aware of them. <laughs> Number three, yeah, going back a bit here, Psycho. Uh, nope. No, okay. Number four, Halloween. Uh, uh, is that Jason, hockey mask guy? No. There you go. So that's a no then. <laughs> <laughs> Number five, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Nope. No. Number six, I think I know this one. I think you know this one. Alien. Yes. I have. Yes. Yeah. We're in at number six. Way. <laughs> Top 10 finish. Number seven, The Haunting, another old film from 1963. Not heard of that. No. no. Number eight, Night of the Living Dead. Nope. Not seen it. No. Number nine, The Thing. I'm betting you might have seen The Thing. No. No? Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and number 10, Poltergeist. Oh, I've seen that. Yes. Carry on, okay. carry on. <laughs> so actually, we're on two out of 10. Well, if Scott had known this, he probably wouldn't have even let you on the show. Well, I, I think you've got the wrong half of the smart party, realistically. <laughs> Gaz is weeping into, oh, his, into his hands at this. <laughs> <laughs> I've sat up after conventions for many hours talking horror films with the guys. Yeah. So yeah, yes. No shade on you, uh, Baz. For, I'm just interested to see, for somebody who describes himself as a non-horror fan, how many of those you would have seen. That's that's uh, No, very, yeah. very, very few. It's, it's yeah. never my favourite thing to do. I, I'll tell you why. Uh, but, I mean, apart from anything else, it's just... I don't like horror films. They scare mm. me. They're horrible. Mm. I know that's the point. <laughs> but, the, but the scaredness, I don't like. And I remember oh, some years ago, uh, I'd been recently married. So 
we went to the movies. We were trying to do so. It may even have been on our honeymoon. We went to see Wolf Creek. Is that a horror film you guys know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. A bit of Australian horror. I absolutely hated it with a passion. Mm. It was so negative, so really disturbing. I was appalled at yeah. humanity. For what, I don't know if it's considered a good horror film or not. I would say it's not considered a good date movie. <laughs> 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 when you have children i think things change anyway but that was the last outright solid horror movie i ever went to see and that's got to be more than 10 years ago yeah probably more like 15 oh goodness well i don't feel like i've missed much <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't say it's a good example of a horror movie it is a horror movie and it, i agree i found that quite a distasteful disturbing film yeah but i think it was meant to be i'm not saying it wasn't meant to be like that but it i and not one that i greatly enjoyed you're right scott i think it was meant to be like that it absolutely had the effect it was after because oh, yeah. i did feel distaste i did feel revulsion i didn't feel good about myself or humanity afterwards but i did not enjoy that experience mm. so that's the difference isn't it? that's why i don't think of myself as a horror fan because i don't seek those experiences and i and the distaste and the, and the revulsion I get the dictionary definitions of those is how I feel. I feel revolted. With that one in particular, I mean, that's an interesting example, though, because you talked initially about how your dislike of horror comes out of the fact that horror films scare you. But did that one actually scare you, or was it purely revulsion? Um, oh, I, I think, yeah, there was an element of, of fear in it, but actually it was a revulsion. Okay. I mean, and it's kind of bloody and gory and splatty, mm. isn't it? And actually, to Paul's earlier point, very relatable, because I think it's based on real events. Or at least inspired by. Exactly. So I was thinking, oh, God, this could happen to me and my family, which I guess was what the director was after. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they hit their triggers, but the triggers for me just made me want to run away and never come back. <laughs> yeah. But I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I don't get scared at, at horror films and particularly not at horror books. Every now and then something will creep me out a little bit in a horror film, but it's very, very rare. Mm. But I developed a lot more sympathy for people who were scared by horror films, or not not sympathy, a lot more understanding when I started playing horror video games ah. because they do scare me. There's something about the feeling of actually being of, of interacting with the horror directly in a, an all-senses way that I don't get from playing a role-playing game, but sort of seeing and hearing creepy stuff and actually projecting myself into that. I generally can't play horror video games because they scare the shit out of me. Wow. That, that's an intense experience for you then. But films don't have that as, uh, effect on me. I guess I don't get immersed in them in quite the same way because there's the analytical part of my brain that's picking them apart and looking for stuff that's coming and looking at the tropes and thinking about the storytelling and stuff like that. And I don't know, maybe that detaches me from the whole thing. Oh, I see. Okay. And, and at the gaming table, those kind of distractions are even more prevalent, aren't they? With snacks and lighting and people coming and going and mobile phones and the rest of it. I think in my role-playing game sessions, whether it be Call of Cthulhu or anything, I'm aware that I'm playing a game, that there are dice and that there are things happening. I think as well part of that is I, I discovered something about myself comparatively recently, which 
sort of explained a lot, which is I, I hadn't heard of it before, but it seems that I have aphantasia. Effectively, I don't have a visual imagination. Oh. I can't picture things. I have no mind's eye. And so as a result, if I'm reading a book or playing a role-playing game or something like that, I don't actually see any of this stuff. I just experience it all through words. Oh. So maybe that's why it doesn't have that effect on me. Well, that's really interesting. Ah, okay. Late in life to be finding that out, Scott. It must yeah. explain a lot. Yeah, I don't really know if I have that or not. My daughter and my wife both talk about being able to see things in their mind's eye quite clearly, almost yeah. like they're looking at a picture. And I think, well, I can't see what's in their head. So I'm like, what do you mean? Do I have this? Do I not have this? I can't quite figure out. If someone tells you to, you know, as a relaxation exercise, close your eyes and imagine that you're on a sunny beach. Hmm. Do you actually see any elements of that? Do you see the beach? Do you see the the water? Do you see the sun? Do you see the sky or anything like that? I kind of do a bit, but not like I'm looking at a picture. I kind of get a sensation, a feeling of it. Yeah. But not like a real image. But I don't know when other people say they see an image, whether they actually literally see it as a picture. That's what I just can't get my head around. Apparently, people who don't have aphantasia do actually see these things. Right. So, well, maybe you're not the only one then. But you guys run and write a lot of scenarios, a lot. And obviously, there's going to be a horror element to the majority of those. When you're writing a scene, do you think you could ever be a film director? I mean, clearly, you can write it down in words on your word processor and get it sent off for layout. But do you not literally picture the scene as you're typing it? Mm, no. That's the thing. I mean, I've written quite a lot of fiction as well as uh, scenarios. And my imagination experiences events and so on through words. And I've been told that I'm quite good at describing stuff in RPGs, quite good at narrating stuff as a GM. Sure. Yes, absolutely. I think part of that may be because I do have a fantasia, because my way of well, visualising, my way of interpreting these things is entirely verbal, that I don't have the visual components to rely on. Fundamentally for me, it is all words. How about the other senses? If I think about a song, I can just about hear it in my head. So that, that works fine. It's just the visual aspect. I can imagine or evoke other senses myself, but I just can't see anything. It's just black. Do you know what? That might explain why the, why the stuff you run is successful from a horror perspective, because I'm just trying to imagine a GM describing a scene to me as a player sat at their table, and they're not seeing it in their head. Mm. Then by the time it reaches me, I'm not kind of seeing the full picture, for want of a better analogy, either. And that's horrific in itself. Almost sensory deprivation. Um, yeah. And that would definitely be unsettling. And that could be exactly, it could work to your favour. Maybe, but I do describe visual stuff and it's, it's weird. I mean, if I'm narrating a scene in a game, for example, I do roughly have an idea where all the, you know, the locations and the characters are. Mm. But the best thing I can liken it to is standing in a familiar darkened room and knowing where the furniture is. <laughs> Just because I know there's a desk over there in the dark doesn't mean I can see it, but I know if I walk over there, I'm going to bump into it. Right, 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 right. Okay, that's really interesting. When I design or write, I think I do have quite a visual sense, and I try to have one. And there is the old idea of a, a GM being a film director, which I don't think mm. entirely lines up, but it's 
prevalent enough that we all know what that means. Mm. I don't think I would be good enough to produce a movie or a short or anything else like that. Mm. If you gave me a video camera and said, make a story, I'd be struggling. So in yeah. some ways, I think the same as you, that I'd be okay with a word processor. That would be absolutely fine. But it definitely, I have images in my head that I then try to describe. I bring up the color image first in my imagination and then try to verbalize what I'm seeing. It's horses for courses, isn't it? But when I, when I think of horrific things to put into my visual memory, I use all the senses and probably the visuals come last. So I wonder if there's any link there. Mm, yeah. Mm. Well, I've got a, one final question, which is, comes from something I read on, I think it was from an official mouthpiece of D&D. <laughs> it was recent and it was to do with Ravenloft because I was playing Ravenloft at the time with Robin and crew. So this caught my eye. What they were saying was that you should not try or attempt to scare your players, but it was okay to scare the characters, but you should not on any level. Or you should, on every level, avoid scaring the actual players. I was taken aback by that because mm. I thought, oh, really? How do we feel about that? It's an interesting take. I feel like I have questions, which you won't be able mm. to answer because you didn't, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't come up with the statement. I think similar to you, Paul, my initial thing is, don't be silly. Of course you should. But I, I think I'd have to give that one a bit more thought. I think there are all kinds of consent issues and, uh, and, yeah. and for the right reason, there are all kinds of safety guidelines in place. Thank goodness in games these days. That said, I have to say that my best experiences in any role playing game is when there's been a bit of emotional bleed. I'm kind of invested mm. in my characters if I've been doing it right. And it does matter to me whether they overcome things or succumb to things. Otherwise, it would be a little bit like playing chess and just pushing my tokens around on a board. And, and, and as a purely intellectual exercise, that's not what I got into gaming for. I think the reason they probably put that in there, this is just me assuming, is as a way of perhaps getting GMs to think about the difference between crossing a line to something that is genuinely upsetting to a player in the game as mm. opposed to something that is fun frightening i suppose if you actually do genuinely scare a player in a game like ravenloft where they haven't necessarily signed up to play a horror game that isn't necessarily something the player wants and probably indicates that something has gone a bit wrong there, that perhaps you've tapped into a very real fear they have. Taking a broad example, perhaps you've thrown in a giant spider and you haven't checked to see whether there's anyone in the group who's got arachnophobia. Mm. And there is someone there who's sitting there who's getting genuinely upset because there is a spider in the game. That is very different from that feeling of, oh yeah, we're on the spooky old moors, there's the mist coming in, you can hear something howling, the moon's coming up ahead, oh yeah, this is this is fun, creepy. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I feel like I should probably reel out the anecdote of the best role-playing game session I've ever played, which is a Call of Cthulhu game, which constantly surprises me that this is the case, but it was the case. And <laughs> And it was at Gen Con back in the 90s, Gen Con UK, with a keeper that I've never encountered before or since. And he single-handedly delivered the best gaming experience I've ever had. It was absolutely masterfully done. And the guy was just, uh, was brilliant with voices, characterization, scene setting. 
Um, I don't remember much about my character or anybody else's characters, but it was very, very immersive. I remember at one stage I had to take a bathroom break and I literally ran to the bathroom and back again so that I would not miss out too much. <laughs> it was astonishing. And I spoke to the fellow afterwards and his name was Adam. Adam, if you're out there, please get in touch. I mean, I would just be desperate to, to get, be in touch. And he said he'd never run a game at a convention before that he was really nervous oh, wow. about doing. He was a master. Now, did he scare me as a player? I think he did a bit. Oh, I had to go to the toilet, clearly. <laughs> Do you only go when you're frightened? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been for 20 years. And he must have scared me because I genuinely don't remember much about my character or any of the other PCs. We were, I think we were MI5, something like that. We were quite two-dimensional. And I'm ashamed to say I didn't bring much more to the character than that. It was me that was invested in the game. It was me. And it was a modern day Call of Cthulhu thing set in London. So I could hugely relate to it. So maybe if it had been set on Pluto in the far future, I might have been more invested in my character. But it was the single best experience I'd had. Was it because he scared me? I don't know. But I was definitely feeling it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have remembered it 20, 30 years later, perhaps. So is that strength of investment in your character that made it feel so powerful or...? I don't think the character had much to do with it. I just think um, I think I was just uh, really swept along by what was happening both to me, and by me, I mean me, Baz, as opposed to mm. whatever my character was called, and also to the people on either side of me. I mean, playing with strangers is always a bit odd anyway, because you never know whether they're playing their character or that's really what they're like. Mm. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's only when you have a drink with them afterwards you think, oh, I was hoping you'd be different. <laughs> 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 but the other guys around the table were equally all leaning forwards on their seats, and there was a definite sense of tension. I think the people around the table had plenty of fear, and that was definitely powerful. And our characters had horrible things happen to them, and there was a tube station and a gun, and things started growing out of people. I remember that. But I'm having to dig deep to remember those mm. bits. What I remember is just the, the sensation of like, I'm on a on a bit of a ghost train here with those kind of thrills, but I don't want the ride to end. I just want to hold on and see where it takes us. It was brilliant, which goes against what D&D person says about Ravenloft. I was happy to be engaged with, with a little bit of tension, a little bit of fear. Very powerful stuff. Well, let's leave it there with... Baz telling us that his best experience was playing a horror game. <laughs> so does that make me a horror fan or not? I don't know. I've never seen the thing, really enjoyed a game called Cthulhu. Well, <laughs> I think it speaks for itself. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yep, starting off with a thanks to Jer Austin. And thank you very much to Naked in My Basement Making Pipe Bombs. These are the kind of backers we uh, attract. Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering whether this is going to get us some new listeners from GCHQ as well. And thanks to Martin Beeler. 
And thank you very much, Bjorn Johansson. And thanks to Vaughan O'Hinton Laugh. And thank you very much to Katharina. And thanks to Keith Richards. And thank you very much to Bwidge. And, of course, we have almost certainly mangled some of your names there. If we have, do let us know and we'll try to correct that. And, of course, if you've enjoyed this or any other episodes of the podcast, please do let people know. Just try not to scare them too much as you do so. So, finally, a big thanks to you, Baz, for joining us on this show. And can I ask, is there anything you want to plug? And where can people find you? Thanks to you both. And, uh, and best wishes to Matt for a speedy recovery as well, when you can have a, a decent horror fan back on your podcast. Uh, <laughs> if you want to hear about everything related to gaming and no doubt plenty of horror inflection too, come see us at whatwouldthesmartpartydo.com. You can find the link to our cast there. And there is some terrific horror content there. I highly recommend our interviews with Greg Stoltzy or Dennis Detweller if you really want to get underneath the skin mm. of some stuff. And for my little side quest into RuneQuest, you can look for RuneQuest Year Zero. It'll be fairly easy to find. Um, and that's going out pretty much now. So you, you're getting close to the start of that. It's not too late to jump on board with that little community. And of course, we'll put links to both of those as well as King of Dungeons in the show notes. Okay, well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. And it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. Roll for initiative from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.